I'm Rick Dedarian, and you're listening to Realms of Memory. The partition of British India in 1947 was one of the most massively traumatic events of the 20th century. Over 14 million people were forced to flee their homes, and over 1 million lost their lives. Yet for decades, historians in South Asia neglected to tell the story of those who suffered most from partition. Women who were victims of rape, murder, and abduction, children separated from their families, and the countless numbers of refugees who fled their homes across new borders to start new lives and new communities. Historian and South Asian specialist Pippa Verdi, who teaches at De Montfort University in the UK, has made it the focus of her career to tell the story of how ordinary people experience partition. She's published books on Pakistan, South Asian immigrants in Coventry, and partition in the Punjab, where she was born and where members of her family still live. We'll be talking with her today about her book, From the Ashes of 1947, Reimagining Punjab. Pippa, welcome to Realms of Memory. Thank you, Rick, for inviting me to your podcast. So I wanted to start just with a question about what drew you to this field of study and what was the interest uh, at the time? <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting you ask me that because um, one of the reasons I became interested in partition was because I, I was prompted um, by Ian Talbot, who became my um, PhD supervisor, to apply for a PhD scholarship. Um, which was being offered by the nephews of Pendril Moon, who was himself a civil servant and posted in Punjab. And actually, Pendril, uh, Pendril Moon had produced his own uh, work, which was called uh, Divide and Quit. And it was based on his postings in Punjab, where he was also looking at, uh, you know, uh, what had happened, and particularly in terms of uh, documenting eyewitness accounts, um, because he was there himself. So when this scholarship came up, um, I thought, okay, let's, I was working full time, I have to admit, uh, but I applied for the scholarship. And I put together a proposal. And one of the things about the proposal was that they wanted the student to focus particularly on the violence and the casualties that uh, erupted in August, um, because this was something that was of interest to Pendril Moon. And so the nephews thought that, you know, this would be a good uh, place to kind of explore this further. And uh, that's how really I started, uh, I, 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 my interest in in partition started. Prior to that, of course, I was interested in the history of India and Pakistan, but I hadn't focused specifically on partition. And I was I was really lucky because actually Ian Talbot, um, you know, he's uh, you know one of the pioneers in uh, partition studies. He's been working on this for such a long time. And so I was very fortunate to have him as a supervisor. And as it turned out, you know, the, the work that I did and much of this book from the ashes of 1947 is drawn from my doctoral work. Um, it was one of the earliest um, studies really to explore through oral testimonies the two Punjabs. 
um, you know, Ian himself was working on the twin cities of Lahore and Amritsar, and 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 they were the kind of two big major cities and the capital. Uh, you know, Lahore was the capital of Punjab, but I was interested in sort of moving away from that core towards the kind of more uh, peripheral areas. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in a sense, that that's where that kind of journey started. So that's interesting. So you did your dissertation research on this topic, and that was tied into the nature of that scholarship. Was that a brand new scholarship at the time? It was. It was a one-off scholarship, and I, so I'm kind of very fortunate that I'm the one and only recipient of that uh, scholarship. I think they they wanted to pay homage to um, uh, you know their uncle. And so they set up this uh, scholarship at the time. And I was very fortunate because it just allowed someone like me who comes from a family where, you know, I'm the first one to go to university. Um, so it just provided me with such an immense opportunity to do something like this, which, you know, it completely transformed my my own life, um, not just because I was exploring this subject, because that also had a big impact, but, uh, you know, that opportunity of education. Mm-hmm. But your family comes from the region of, of the Punjab, right? Yes. So uh, my own background... Uh, is that I was born in Ludhiana, and Ludhiana is one of the cities that I explore in the in the book. And I, you know, my first few years of growing up were there as a child, but then we moved to Kenya. So my early kind of childhood is of growing up in a small place called Nakuru. Uh, and that was partly because my father went there for work. And it was from there later on um, that we moved to the UK. But my connection with Punjab has always uh, remained. And my family, uh, you know, still live there, close family, still live in, um, in, in what is Indian Punjab. But my mother was also born from, uh, you know, what is today West Punjab, um, not far from Lahore. So there, although my own family experience is that they weren't impacted by the partition and the dislocation and the forced migration that took place, um, I am, of course, very much rooted in the in, in the place. But I think from sort of talking to my mother about this, um, even she has memories of when this happened in that, uh, you know, she just remembers the vast amount of dislocation that took place around where she lived. Uh, she remembers refugee camps erupting everywhere around her. So, you know, even if you weren't directly forced to flee, you, you could still see the repercussions of you because they were so vast. Mm-hmm. Although I did encounter, I was talking to a South Asian uh, person in my, my area about this this uh, particular aspect of, of, of history that I was going to work on. And he said, well, you know, I'm from South India. It really didn't uh, concern us that much. So m- maybe it still depends on what part of the country you're from. 
I, I, I think, uh, you know, this is completely right because if you belong to these areas that are impacted and, and, and the areas that are actually impacted are largely going across northern subcontinent. Um, and of course the two borders, uh, or the two regions that are divided, primarily Punjab and Bengal are affected the most. But there are also areas in between. So UP um, is an interesting place because UP is where the Pakistan movement started. Um, and many of the Muslims of, uh, you know, places like Aligarh, that Aligarh is the spiritual heartland of the Pakistan movement. And people from there uproot themselves and relocate to places like Karachi. And if you're interested in sort of uh, looking at Karachi and Sindh, Sara Ansari has done a lot of work in this area. So, you know, it depends where you are and to what extent you're impacted. But having said that, I mean, I think the interesting thing, I don't know where the this, the friend from South India is. I think the other kind of interesting place to kind of look at is Hyderabad in, uh, the, you know, the massive princely state. Um, which initially didn't want to join India or Pakistan. And that also has a very troubled history because actually it's after the police action that takes place and and it's forcibly annexed in 1948 because you just couldn't have this, you know, uh, autonomous princely state in the middle of South India. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think you said at the time when you were starting – there was a shift in the way in which partition was studied uh, and that it was really looked at in a somewhat limited way uh, up until the 1990s. And that started to change. And and I think you mentioned that one of the things that drew you to this field of study is, is this interest in in looking at it from a different angle with different sources. Yeah. uh, I suppose again, in a way, uh, you know, my own kind of background influences the way I wanted to also explore this. Because one of the things at that time that was very um, important were, well, there was one book in particular, The Other Side of Silence uh, by Urvashi Butalia. Um, And her work had just uh, come out not long before I started my PhD in 2000. And the other was Borders and Boundaries by Ritu Menon and Kamala Basim. And both this, uh, both these, uh, uh, studies were crucial in really kind of reframing, um, partition. Uh, I, I, you know, just to kind of give you a sort of background context. You had, particularly during the 1980s, a new historiographical school which started to emerge. Um, it was partly sort of influenced by Marxism uh, and especially writers such as Ranjit Guha. And this subaltern study school started to provide a kind of an alternative history uh, to the dominant discourse. And it wanted to look at things like popular nationalist struggles, uh, in, in terms of how they were depicted from not just this kind of elitist perspective, but actually 
looking at the grassroots and through the peasants and away from, you know, this shift that was beginning to take place in history of moving away from the great men of history and towards more of a history from below. And it was that history from below that I was particularly drawn to. And the combination of that plus oral history, which you know, when I was doing my PhD, it was really not used that much within history. Uh, you know, a lot of orthodox historians were quite sceptical about the use of oral uh, narratives uh, in history work. Things have changed a lot since then. So I started doing this work influenced by this other work that was taking place in India. And I think the thing about this, the kind of publication of these books was that really they had women at the centre of the research. Um, and, and and I think, you know, they've been hugely influential for scholar, uh, scholars since then. Um, you know, and, and, and this includes, uh, includes me, um, that kind of, you know, the her story approach. It seemed to challenge uh, these kind of conventional approaches and it foregrounded women's experiences of partition. And at the same time, what it did, and I I think this is, you know, very radical, uh, really, is it started to critique political history and it seemed to kind of provide a way in which, you know, you can approach things from a different perspective. And I think this research, it didn't just highlight the kind of oppressive nature of the state, but crucially also how social oppression, cultural power can operate across multiple levels. Um, and I think in that sense, this this work was very sort of important because both of the these works tapped into oral histories and speaking to uh, women, uh, to Dalits, uh, you know, Dalits are the kind of untouchable community, to speaking to those very marginalised voices. And so oral history was a vehicle through which you could incorporate those marginalised voices where the official record did not. Because when we look at documented official histories, those are the kind of voices that are often just absent. Mm-hmm. So is it fair to say that what four decades after partition, it, you have to get to the 1980s until you have a change in, in, in how that that history is uh, is uh, is written, and that it's it's a largely a political history up until that point. It's, it's a top down uh, history written by the the power brokers, or written from uh, looking at the that that particular angle of the decision makers, uh, and even though it's it's a history that affects millions of people they're left out of it. Absolutely. And and, and so I think, uh, you know, that top-down history, but, but also I think sometimes, you know, these sites of trauma and dealing with the past does take a long time. Um, that's not to say actually that nothing was done. Um, you know, there, there, we have a lot of literature 
that was written in the wake and inspired by what had happened in 1947. So there there is a whole body of uh, work uh, on this. Uh, there is even film. Film is there, perhaps to a kind of a lesser extent than literature. But in a way, film and literature, because it's fictionalised or it can be fictionalised, it's easier in many ways to talk about some of these very traumatic issues. And sometimes these are very taboo subjects as well. Uh, because you're, what you're saying is that this is not real, it's fiction. But they were drawn from real events. So, you know, if you're, and, and, and this is something that I use quite a lot in my book as well, that yes, of course, this is fiction, but these are people of that time drawing from their own experiences of that time. Um, so it tells us something of an alternative lens through which we can look at this history. So we may not have those personal testimonies, but we do have these other ways of looking into the past. That was one of the things that struck me, is that uh, the first people to really address those difficult histories of what happened in 1947 were not historians. Historians are really late to the party, almost. It's, it's, it's cultural actors. It's writers, first and foremost. You mentioned uh, uh, movie directors. Uh, they're the ones who are doing this in fictional accounts, but, but also drawing from their own family histories in the process. I don't know whether that's particular to, to the South Asian case or you find that in, in other places, but that was one of the, the, the striking characteristics, at least that um, jumped out at me. No, I mean, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that uh, Lahore, um, which is in West Punjab, it was considered the kind of cultural capital of North India. Um, and a very good friend of mine and mentor, Pran Neville, he used to always call it the Paris of the East. He said Lahore was the Paris of the East. Uh, he went to school, um, government college, Lahore, which was this kind of premier institution. Um, and he has very fond memories, or he did have very fond memories of the place. And so Lahore, if you think of this kind of cultural capital, it was, you know, the kind of heart of the movie making industry. Much of the talent we saw in Bombay in the 1940s were people who actually came from Lahore and vice versa. Um, so those kind of connections you can see even within the film industry, you know, the kind of the singers, the playback singers, the writers, the directors, there was this huge kind of exchange. And that actually happens between Bombay and, and Lahore. And there's some very interesting work actually uh, in recent years that's been emerging um, in this area. So the people who tell that story, if they're telling it through culture first, they are part of that history of displacement. Yeah. I mean, you, you see this, uh, you know, so someone like Kushwan Singh, for example, writes about train to Pakistan. You know, he's, he's part of that history as much as, uh, you know, the history that or the stories that he's telling. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not an expert sort of on the kind of, you know, outside this area, but I can't imagine that other, 
that there aren't other parallels to this in other countries. I, I wonder, um, I mean, for historians, is national politics, is it just too strong? I mean, are they, is it just too strong of a current for them to fight against, to to really dig into that that past? Because, again, how do you look at the beginnings of these nations when they're part when you have this this horror story that's a, that's a part of that uh part of that beginning um i'm not sure how i mean how would you explain why it takes historians so long to start delving into the lives of of, of regular people looking at it in, in a broader way i mean i suppose part of uh, if i'm looking at it sort of um you know, more sort of uh, as an outsider looking in, because I think in a sense, I'm also in a kind of unique position because I'm a kind of insider, but I'm also an outsider. And I think that partly has given me a, a very kind of unique lens through which I can sort of look at this place. But I think one of the things is that you also have to understand that history itself as a discipline has undergone vast change over the last 70 odd years so in in the kind of the time that um you know we've gone through um looking at partition history from where it was in the 1940s 1950s etc it has gone through fundamental changes so for example um you know the arrival of the looking at social and cultural history, right? Of this begins to take place in the 1960s and 70s. The use of oral history and looking at history from below, at looking at these marginalized voices, this begins to emerge in the late 60s, 1970s. We have a number of movements, as you know, the kind of civil rights movements, but also around uh, equality, gender equality, etc. History inevitably has to respond and come out of what was traditionally the kind of the old Rankian sort of model. And I think that kind of gradual process, um, so this is from an outside perspective, right? So these are things that are influencing historians outside the subcontinent. But within the subcontinent, actually the history that is written, particularly in those early decades, has to be pro-nationalist history. These are two new nations that are trying to forge out a new identity, having got independence, how are you going to project yourself? You need to celebrate your past and you need to tell a history which is strong and a history which reflects you. So I think that takes some time for, you know, particularly that kind of early period. Um, And, you know, one might sort of disagree with it, but actually it's important for a nation to do that. It's only sort of many decades later. And and I suppose, okay, so then the third variant, of course, is the people themselves. Why aren't the people telling their own accounts? Um, well, they are, but they're telling it through these, you know, through fiction, through film, through these alternative lenses. 
But for those who it's a lived reality, and certainly with many of the people that I spoke with, you know, many of them were dislocated many times. They they were very unsettled. Um, and sometimes this lasted 10 years, sometimes even more. So when you're there in the moment, it's very difficult to feel settled and to think of reflecting on the past because you're still living through that process yourself. You're still, in many ways, I suppose, uh, having to deal with a different di- reality. So you don't really talk about the past. You just get on with what is the immediate task for you. And it's only with the passage of time that I think you can begin to then reflect and talk about the past in a particular way and talk about it as a memory. And, and really it's in, you know, I mean, for Urvishi Batalia, the, the triggering point was, um, 1984, you know, the pogroms that took place uh, following the assassination of Indira Gandhi in Delhi. And it was those anti-Sikh riots that took place that she, you know, when she started to speak to people, um, one of the things they said to her was, it's like 1947 all over again. Mm, that's fascinating. So there are trigger events that there, there's uh, people are trying to move on with their lives. Uh, uh, there's a certain silence about the past and maybe you have to move forward several decades uh, until people's lives are in a different place or a different generation. Uh, and you have certain events that then trigger those memories of the past. Mm. And, and And I think, you know, Perhaps we can say that, you know, 1997, um, you know, good 50 years later is when you begin to see much more of the reflective work come out. Um, You know, whether it's through scholarship or whether it's through the kind of popular sort of writers, activists, etc. We begin to see much more taking place in the 1990s. And I think the kind of interesting thing perhaps of the 1990s um, and, you know, um, Ritu Menon and Kamla Basin also talk about this, is that, you know, the, uh, similar events were also taking place um, in Bosnia and also Rwandan genocide. And that does have repercussions because now the media is also different, right? So you're able to um, you know, communicate m- with much more speed what is happening around different parts of the world. And that does in itself also then trigger other people to kind of think about these events. What is happening? You know, what had happened in Bosnia against women? What had happened against the women in Rwanda, etc.? And it makes you think about your own past and what had happened here in Punjab as well. So it, it it's not something that, you know, I think uh, you just kind of go into. And, uh, and of course, we can blame the historians uh, for neglecting this past. But I suppose the kind of, I, I think these things are such that they do require that passage of time. It's, you know, it's a very traumatic past to sort of start uncovering. And even when I was doing those 
interviews, uh, I remember actually quite uh, vividly, it was one of the first interviews I did. And, you know, I was a young uh, PhD scholar, not having had much experience of uh, doing interviews. And this was in Malay Kotla. And I was doing research there, talking about, you know, the kind of cross-communal harmony uh, that existed in Malay Kotla. And there was this elderly Sikh gentleman um, who owned a fabric shop. And he sat there uh, cross-legged. I can still remember him quite vividly. Um, we were talking about, um, you know, he came from Sialkot, and so I was asking him about his life history. And near the end of the interview, um, he just said something to me. And he, he was saying, you know, look, everything is fine. You know, we've, we live here. My family is happy. We've reestablished ourselves. Everything is fine. But the one thing I can't do is go and visit the place that I was born, my ancestral home my ancestral, ancestral land. I can never go there. And as he was saying this, he had, um, you know, tears coming down his eyes. And nothing can prepare you for that, right? To sort of watch this, you know, elderly man talk about the past in such a, um, in such a way. And so, you know, it makes you kind of think about what you're also doing by talking about this past. Um, you know, I, I don't know how many times he'd spoken to his family members about it. Um, but, you know, that moment will always stay with me because that's the reality for many of those people because there is such a hard border between the two countries. And I think this is part of the problem that because they can't, go across that border, you can never, you know, um, you can never reconcile with that past, with that fracture that has taken place. And the people who can cross the border are far and few, and perhaps those with means. Um, but, you know, that it, it is one of the most kind of tragic things. Um, you know, had that border not been as hard as it has been, and especially in recent years, then perhaps we would have a different um, history. And I think one of the points you make, especially if you're looking at this region of the Punjab, is how it was a region where so many different communities lived together and were mixed together, right? Uh, so uh, you end up with these hard borders and divided populations. And uh, uh, it was a polar opposite I mean, is it fair to say it was a polar opposite uh, universe prior to partition? Um, and uh, you can't really understand what happened in 1947 unless you have a, a, some sense of just how mixed of a region it actually was. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, prior to partition, um, the population of Punjab was just slightly... Uh, over 50% majority Muslim. And the rest were uh, Hindus, Muslims, small number of Christians, Buddhists, as well as other uh, smaller sects. 
within that, there were areas that were completely mixed between these three communities. There were some areas which were slightly more majority, one community or the other. But, you know, they, the, the two cities that I focused on, for example, and one of the reasons I was particularly interested in, in this, is that Ludhiana at the time was a town, as was Lalpur. They were both towns, but they're now big cities, big metropolis. And at the time, Ludhiana, which is in um, Indian Punjab today, was 62% Muslim population. And Lalpur at the time, which is now in Pakistan, was 62% non-Muslim. So, and today, those communities are completely, you know, non-existent because of that mass migration that took place, almost total migration that takes place. You have that huge demographic change that takes place. And these, remember, are just two cities. This is happening across uh, the region. But if you look at the transformation of those two cities, that makes the story that much more incredible, how those populations flip uh, after 1947. And then you, um, much of your work is on just the prosperity and, and economic transformation uh, of those two cities, often with um, refugee populations being a key motor of that. Um, uh, that, uh, that story is that much more incredible, uh, given um, the changes that happened. Yeah, I mean, I was very interested in understanding, um, you know, this impact of the refugees, because in some areas, the the refugee population is so vast that, you know, we're talking about 60-70% of the local population, which is now a refugee population. And it completely transforms these urban centers. I mean, Delhi uh, or Delhi as a, uh, you know, capital is completely transformed. Delhi was a Mughal uh, city. It had a vast Muslim population. All of that is now completely, um, well, I wouldn't say completely, by and large, it has gradually been erased. Um, out of because the the people go, but then with the people is also a change in language, in food, in culture. So you don't just see a demographic change, but you see a complete change and a gradual transformation then takes place, in, you know, through the decades, and so. You know, one of the kind of most fascinating things that I, I remember doing, uh, and my brother-in-law was fantastic because he lives in uh, in Ludhiana. He still lives there, my sister and my uh, brother-in-law. Um, we used to go on his um, motorcycle or moped to the old parts of Ludhiana because uh, you couldn't take a car there because the streets are so narrow. You know, it, it, it just becomes very difficult. So you either had to take a rickshaw or you go on two wheels. And so he used to take me to these parts of old Ludhiana because I, I spent time there because I knew this is where the old Muslim population prior to partition lived. And with those populations going out, 
they obviously were replaced by incoming refugees. And all these people would be, be, would be people from the other side of Punjab. And so just walking around, talking to people, you know, you can find every other person is, you know, uh, has a history and a story which is associated with the other side. And it's a fascinating area. What about the people who used to live there? I mean, has that past just been forgotten? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of stories of people who, you know, have through technology maybe been able to see these places. But by and large, these places now have a new history. But the places get transformed. So, for example, you know, you might have a a Gudwara, for example, um, and I've got a picture of this in uh, in my book. It's a Gudwara in Lalpur which is now a school. Or you have a mandir, which is now a mosque. Or you have a mosque, which is now a gurdwara, for example. So these places change hands, they become, you know, they get a new lease of life. And the ways in which people keep these places alive, um, and one of the kind of most sort of... um, in a way, it should highlight the way this works is I I did an interview um, in Lalpur. Um, it was in the old bazaar and it was with a, a sweet vendor. And the sweet vendor's uh, name was Ludhiana Sweet Shop. And of course, he came from Ludhiana and he had his own history that was associated with Ludhiana. And then at the same time in Ludhiana, there is a famous sweet shop called Lalpur Sweet Centre. And this is someone who has a history in Lalpur. And through those two place names, they've kept alive their own ancestral history. Um, and it's a it's a powerful kind of reminder of how you know, these histories are so intermeshed with each other. And so sort of going back to, you know, your friend from South India, it would be very difficult for someone like that friend to kind of understand. But equally, you know, I'm in a kind of privileged position because I've been able to spend time in both of these places. So I can see how it operates in both of these uh, Punjabs. I mean, is it fair to say, though, that uh, on the one hand, people are bringing memories of the communities they left with them, they're starting new lives, and they're, they're not building it on, uh, on amnesia about the past. Uh, they, they need something, some kind of foundation. Uh, and, but at the same time, what was there before does get lost. Uh, and if you have a hardening of borders between uh, between these two countries, if you have an unmixing of this incredibly diverse region, part of what gets lost is just the forgetting of how people live together, of how mixed uh, uh, it, it was. Uh, um, and you move on to new separate lives. Yeah. And, and, and I've seen this um, take place, you know, even in the, in the last 20 years that I've been um um, you know, going back and forth. Uh, I mean, in a sense, the kind of the, the border is hard, 
but the way you tell those histories, and this is why I suppose in a sense, um, you know, I, I say that as an outsider and both an insider, I, I have a slightly different take because on the one hand, you can view many of these things through memory um, and nostalgia, uh, and especially if you're located here. But the other reality for many of the people who live in divided Punjab today is that it's a very communalized and divided history. So East Punjab in India is today a predominantly Sikh Punjab, um, and it was further divided. So uh, the the Punjab that was in August 1947 was subdivided, and you had two other states that were carved out, Himachal Pradesh and Haryana. So the Punjab itself is actually much smaller, but it's a Sikh-majority state. And Punjab, a Punjabi is the predominant language, it's taught, it's preserved. But the history that is taught there is predominantly, I would say, through a Sikh history lens, right? So that's one. And you can sort of see that, you know, this is part of the state and the way it wants to frame its history, which is fine. It's it's a Sikh majority state. Conversely, in what is Pakistan Punjab, Punjabi as a language doesn't have a a status as such because the Punjabis in Pakistan are part of that uh, nation-making elite. And Pakistan has become sort of, you know, much more sort of uh, complex and I don't want to sort of go off topic here. But the language there is not something which is preserved the way it is in Eastern Punjab. So the majority of Punjabis don't speak Punjabi. And because for them, it's much more important to use Urdu because Urdu is the national language. But then if you lose, start losing the language, you also lose, you know, the history and the culture that is associated with the language. And so there's been this kind of complete sort of transformation. And so, you know, you see these two Punjabs and in the last 70 odd years, they've followed very different trajectories. And so that kind of plural Punjab of the kind of, you know, uh, the early 20th century is only there in small fragments and in certain places. Um, and of course, it will only get stronger with the passage of time. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think that that was, because one way of casting this, uh, it's interesting because I'm coming off an episode on the how, how uh, the Armenian genocide is remembered in Turkey. And, and one of the ways it was remembered was uh, through this, at least the official memory, was to cast that pre the prehistory of the genocide uh, through a nostalgic lens of communities coexisting peacefully. And it was just nationalism that threw a wrench in all of that. Um, and maybe it's easy to simplify the pre-1947 history as one of a, a golden age of coexistence. Um, I mean, and then you'd have to look at, at, at partition maybe in a different way. I mean, it, what, what was it? Was it something you see as being inevitable or having its roots long before 1947? 
Was it something that was just mismanaged politically? Uh, and, and you spend a lot of time talking about how, uh, you know, how, how the whole process of managing what, what actually took place could have been done differently. Um, and, and how there were precedents that people could have paid attention to. I mean, how, how do you look at what happened? Did it have to happen? Um, could things have gone differently? Could you have ended up with different relations between these two countries if it had been managed differently? Yeah, there's <laughs> there's so much there, isn't there? Um, I mean, I think I think the thing about nostalgia is that yeah, I I, I agree to some extent that you know we do tend to and and I say this now as a Punjabi that we tend to look at our past through uh through these kind of um nostalgic you know yes everything was great everything was fantastic and yes there was an element of that but equally there were problems um you know and 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 one of the things you know just to kind of illustrate um uh, that point so speaking to some of the kind of Muslim uh, refugees in Pakistan, um, you know, there, there were lots of discussions about how people came together during festivals, events, and how everything was very harmonious. But the one aspect which does come, uh, come up a number of times is that, for example, you're visiting someone's house, it's a festival, it's a wedding. Um, they would always keep a separate dish or separate food for the Muslims who were visiting. You're othering them. You're thinking of them as being unpure. And this was a kind of an accepted thing that, you know, uh, this is your food or this is your dish and therefore, you know, you behave this way. And this is the way society coexisted for a long time. But that does lead to a difference. And it does show that you do other them. And whilst ordinarily, you are happy and you have happy relations with each other. But when it comes to things like food, purity, and marriage, for example, particularly marriage, there's not very there's not that much tolerance for these things. And even today, there is very little. And of course, the current government uh, absolutely discourage um, interfaith marriages. But never mind interfaith. There's no intercaste marriages. Very few intercaste marriages take place even today. So at that social level, there's no mixing. You know, everyone is kind of aware of their place, and and that's kind of acceptable, and th- and that keeps the kind of the balance there. So, whilst on the one hand we can kind of be nostalgic about the past and think that nothing um, toward happened, well, of course there were ap- episodes. You know, this is uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a vast land, it's a vast country. We've got mix of. British colonial rule and princely states, uh, it would be impossible to not to have disturbances. So there's always, uh, you know, when you look at it historically, there, you know, there are plenty of episodes of disturbances that 
have taken place. And there were disturbances also in Malaya Kotla, where I did my um, PhD research. And Malaya Kotla actually witnessed no um, communal violence in 1947 or subsequently. So even in a place like that in the 1930s, there were disturbances. So there is a history there that goes back to the colonial period, and in fact, even pre-colonial. And therefore, we should have been better prepared. But actually, I don't, I mean, one of the things I do say in the book is about how they really didn't anticipate something like this happening. Um, You know, in when you think about, uh, you know, what was being proposed. And part of the problem, of course, was that also in Punjab, they didn't declare the Radcliffe Award until three days after uh, independence was given. And I think part of the issues also were that, um, you know, because there's no prior notice, uh, people are quite uncertain about which side of the border they would be on. And so the majority of people actually remained quite oblivious to the kind of politics that was taking place and the kind of wrangling over boundaries. And it was really when the violence and the chaos started to spread that you start to see this mass hysteria and forced migration taking place. And it's not until that violence starts that you it forces people to flee. But if we're, you know, if we if we haven't learned from the past, and the past actually wasn't that far ago, because in March 1947, you had riots and violence taking place. And that should have been, and even prior to that in 1946, um, in October 1946 in, in Calcutta, for example, you know, all these are red flags that this is a very tense situation. I mean, isn't that why the British accelerate their departure? I mean, they see the storm coming and they, they want to get out before it does happen. Yeah. I mean, they want to get out before this is a full-out civil conflict and then they can't actually peacefully, so-called peacefully, transfer power. But that kind of transfer of power has already started um, because it's it, it, it starts with the, uh, you know, June 3rd plan, um, the Independence Act. So there is that transfer. and But the problem is, of course, no one is prepared. No one thinks that people would willingly get up, abandon their homes and leave and cross the international boundary. They just didn't think this would happen. In the second part of this episode, which will air on August 15th, Pippa discusses the conditions and motivations that fueled the extreme violence in the Punjab. She explains the difficulty of coming up with an all-encompassing label for the many forms of violence perpetrated during partition. She sheds light on why women became prominent targets of violence and why both Pakistan and India spent years trying to repatriate the tens of thousands of women abducted during partition. Lastly, she comments on the possibilities and limitations of recent efforts to remember partition at places like Harvard and Stanford University through massive digital archives. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, tell a friend and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm Rick Dadarian. See you soon.